This is a Federal News Network podcast. There is yet another lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the military's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. The latest class action targets the Air Force's religious accommodation process, arguing that process is set up in such a way that getting a religious exemption to the vaccine is almost impossible. The plaintiffs argue that violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the First Amendment. Mike Berry is senior counsel at First Liberty Institute, a nonprofit legal group that focuses on religious liberty issues. He's one of the attorneys representing the airmen challenging the mandate. Mike, thanks for being here. And, and let's start by talking a bit about your clients, where they are in the Air Force vaccine exemption process and, and what led you to file the suit. Well, First Liberty Institute represents nine uh, Air Force members uh, who are challenging the uh, the Air Force's enforcement of its vaccine mandate. And our clients are uh, they're stationed in, in various locations. Quite a few of them are here in Texas. And they have uh, you know different ranks, different different job responsibilities in the Air Force. A number of them are actually pilots uh, in the Air Force. And so all of them have requested religious accommodations from the vaccine mandate, uh, which is, of course, uh, something that DOD regulations and even federal law clearly permit and allow. Uh, and in fact, the Department of Defense allows medical exemptions and administrative exemptions from the vaccine. But although the Air Force has approved hundreds of medical and administrative exemptions, they have uh, only approved a very small handful of, of religious exemptions. And even the ones that they've approved by their own admission, they are only for uh, Air Force members who are who are basically already separating or already on their way out. So our you know our lawsuit is really predicated on on, on the argument that this is all a sham. You know that that the Air Force is not following the Constitution. They're not following federal law. They're not following their own regulations, and they are discriminating against people in the military. This case seems remarkably similar to another case that I, I think. First Liberty was also counsel on with a group of Navy SEALs before the very same judge, I believe, too. Um, you got a preliminary injunction in that case and a favorable ruling from the Fifth Circuit. Are there major differences here? The story seems pretty uh, similar to what's going on with these airmen. No, really. The, the, I mean, this is happening across the entire Department of Defense. Uh, the only difference is really is that each branch of the military has their own internal uh, internal regulations and policies for how they adjudicate these things. And so, of course, that means you have to bring different lawsuits on behalf of, of people, depending on what branch of the military that they're in. But in terms of the underlying legal issues that are raised, no, they're, they're exactly the same. The military across the board is discriminating, discriminating against people of faith. They are, they're ignoring the law. They're ignoring the Constitution. And, and really, the, the greatest harm here is not just to our members of the military who are suffering under this, but it's actually to our to our nation, uh, our military. I mean, you can uh, you know open any news feed that that you want, and you'll see headline after headline talking about the recruiting and retention woes that 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 plague our military right now. We are hemorrhaging people like crazy, and we're having a really hard time recruiting capable people to join our military. That means that, that, that this is quickly becoming a national security concern. When we are kicking out people by the thousands. And yet we're, we're, we're saying that we're having a hard time recruiting people. And in one instance, I saw one of the head people for recruiting in the military said, you know, we're having a really hard time identifying, uh, uh, you know, basically people who are eligible to serve in the military. And one of the reasons for that is if, they, if they're between the ages of 17 and 23 and they're not vaccinated, we're not even willing to talk to them. 
And so they're basically closing off an entire segment of society in a discriminatory manner because of those people's religious beliefs and religious convictions. I mean, that, that, this is quickly becoming a national security issue for our nation. I want to go back to what you said earlier about the process being a sham, because I want to try and draw out how much of an issue that actually is in these cases. In a, in a hypothetical alternate universe where, where the Navy and the Air Force, the rest of the services had a an exemption process or a waiver process that did look more credible to you and to the court, do you lose these cases? No, I, I think what happens is they become much smaller cases, right? They, they, they become the exception and not the norm. I think that, that a a process that is not a sham looks a little bit something like the the military, regardless of what branch we're talking about, uh, takes an honest look and says, okay, what is this person's j- job or their or their function? And is there somewhere else we can assign them where maybe uh, they, they're they're at less risk of of COVID transmission or 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 they start looking at the data, right? The actual CDC data and the COVID data, and they start looking at around and saying, you know what, uh, Starbucks, for example doesn't have a vaccine requirement. And yet people who work in, I mean, you're coming in very close proximity with thousands of people per day, you know, hundreds of people per hour, and at least in the Starbucks that I've been in recently, where they've been, you know, packed in like sardines. And yet they say, you know what, we, we, we now believe that it's okay for our employees to not be vaccinated. It's okay for our customers to not be vaccinated. And, and I haven't heard of a single Starbucks shutting down. Uh, same thing on airplanes, right? Commercial airlines have said, you know what, we're going to lift the mask mandate. Of course, that came because of a federal judge's ruling. But nevertheless, how many, I mean, I fly almost on a weekly basis for my job, and I have yet to hear of a single flight being canceled because there was a COVID outbreak at 30,000 feet. Uh, so, Everywhere else in society has been able to figure this out, but our military hasn't because they take such an iron-fisted, draconian approach to everything and just say basically, no, you will do this because we said so, and if you don't, we're going to kick you out. Uh, and then if, and if you come back and you say, oh, no, no, but my, my exemption is a medical exemption, not a religious exemption, then the military says, oh, well, in that case, we welcome you with open arms. And that is textbook discrimination, right? When you treat people who have a medical exemption more favorably than you treat somebody who has a religious exemption, that is textbook discrimination, and, and that's what's happening, and that's why this is a sham. The Air Force case is a putative class action. If the court certifies the class, does the class become all unvaccinated airmen or everyone who's been denied a religious exemption? How large is the class? It would be everyone who has requested and been denied a religious accommodation from the from the vaccine mandate, specifically the COVID vaccine mandate. So that right now that number is is, is several thousand. I know uh, off the top of my head, uh, the, the number in the Navy is somewhere near 4,100. It's just under 4,100. Uh, the Air Force number is, is probably in the same ballpark. Got it. Um, I, I think one of the military's concerns is, you know, what, what's what's the limiting principle here? Because how do you avoid getting to the point where anyone can deny? or refuse any lawful order by claiming that they have a sincerely held religious belief that would be encumbered by it? Well, I mean, that's, that's the beauty of, of the way that the law works, right? The, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is, it doesn't, you know, the, the sincerity issue is, is what everybody seems to be concerned with, right? Well, what if somebody's not really sincere? You know, what if this is political ideology masquerading as, as religious piety, Right. Well, the good news is the law is set up so that the government actually can, can win those cases when all they have to do is demonstrate that they have a compelling interest and that the, the way that they are accomplishing their compelling interest is the least restrictive means on the person's 
religious beliefs. So if you can find a way to accommodate somebody's religious beliefs in a less burdensome way, right, a, a way that's less uh, obstructive or, 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 or cumbersome on their religious exercise, then if the person is really sincere in their religious beliefs, they'll usually accept that. They'll accept that alternative and say, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to do that. And so, for example, in, in a different context, somebody who says that they're a Sabbath observer and they cannot work on the Sabbath, but that they're willing to, to, to trade shifts with somebody, most of the cases I've seen, they're actually willing to take, you know, what most people consider to be a, a less favorable shift, right? So if, if they work Sunday afternoon, uh, or if they're scheduled to work a particular Sunday afternoon, they say, well, I'm a Sabbath observer on Sundays. Hey, you know, you have the Friday night shift, right? I'm, I'm happy to take that one from you if you want to swap with me. Or, you know, and, they, and, they, and they do that through the employer, or the employer offers that. They're usually willing to accept that and say, you know, look, I, yeah, I'm happy to, you know, night shifts aren't popular, especially on, on Friday nights and things like that, but I'm willing to do that. It's really the same thing in, in the military context with this vaccine where they're saying, look, teleworking or, 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 you know, doing a lot of these other measures, right, social distancing, masking, testing, whatever the case might be, they're not pleasant, they're burdensome, but the person says, but you know what, at the end of the day, I'm not having to inject something in my body that violates my religious beliefs, so I'm willing to go through that. And usually when somebody is, is willing to go through those measures, that dem demonstrates a degree of sincerity. The problem here is that the government is simply unwilling to offer any compromises. They're basically saying, nope, the vaccine is the only way that we are going to allow you to continue to remain in the service. And, and one of the other things I forgot to mention was the whole concept of natural immunity. You know, why, are, why is the DOD ignoring natural immunity when the CDC and other epidemiologists and medical experts have all generally agreed natural immunity is a real thing. And in some cases, according to some reports, it's even more durable than the vaccine. And you don't have to get boosters and things like that. But the DOD is just saying, nope, we, we, we won't even recognize that. We won't even consider it. Even though they consider natural immunity for other, um, for other you know, communicable diseases and, and, and infections and things like that. Um, last thing, there, there's a lot of these vaccine cases, even just military vaccine cases, floating around in various district courts and circuits at the moment. I think there's uh, almost 30 now. Yeah, there's a ton. Assuming, maybe I'm assuming too much, but if they eventually get consolidated and the Supreme Court grants cert on something that um, considers the issue more broadly, would you expect that we'll get a, a case or a ruling that goes beyond the narrow issue of vaccines and gives the military some guidance as to how RIFRA and broader religious accommodation issues apply to the military? I mean, probably not at the Supreme Court level. The Supreme Court is, is you know, historically, will, they only address the legal issues that are brought before them, right? They don't, they don't offer what are, in the legal speak, we call advisory opinions. You know, in other words, yeah. it, it's, it's usually ill-advised to take an opinion on one subject or one issue and then try to extrapolate and that and say, well, that should apply across the board to all issues. That, that's that's usually unwise, you know. And 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 so practitioners uh, who are in front of the Supreme Court frequently, like us, you know, we we usually know not to do that. So I think that if one of these cases does end up in front of the Supreme Court, it will probably be addressed on on just on the narrow vaccine issue. Um, now people will be able to take the analysis that the Supreme Court used and say, okay, the way that they analyze this issue. Uh, that might give us some indication of how they would analyze other issues, 
right? But what we can't do is say, well, because they ruled this way in this case, this is how they're going to rule in, in, in all cases. That's Mike Berry, senior counsel at First Liberty Institute. We'll post a link to the lawsuit we've been talking about at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. 
but I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.